our stories hold power when they're real. And when you can tell your story without any censorship of yourself, that's where the real power comes from. That's when the things start to flow. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. We're back to a regular episode after last week's third annual Best of Business Jargon That Drives Us Crazy, Part 1. Remember that Part 2 is coming on July 4th. Now, one of the key goals of the podcast is to show that leadership can take many forms and that leadership is not reserved to the business world, but it must start in the day-to-day -day life. Our guest today is a great example. Mia Byrne is a professional musician and an activist. She's a singer-songwriter and guitarist releasing music in her own name and an in-demand studio musician for other artists. She's also a trans woman and queer and one of the first fully out trans women to gain recognition in the country and Americana genres. Because of that position, over time she has become a recognized leader and advocate in those communities, a courageous artist not afraid to speak her mind up, and a strong supporter for her community. In our conversation, we discussed the process of coming out in the music industry and how embracing her full identity has impacted Mia's artistic expression. We also talked about the impact that her being out had on other queer and trans musicians. She told me how her role as an activist has changed over the years and how now a lot of her leadership is manifested in the support that she provides for other trans artists and people. She creates a welcoming and open space that helps them activate and actualize their skills. What I loved about this part of our conversation is that it allows a very clear model for embracing your identity and authenticity and then translating it to a very accessible approach to leadership. It's a very universal approach that can be applied to many different identities. Now, there are many reasons why I asked Mia to be on the podcast, and I want to just share a couple. The first one is that obviously right now in this country, there's a vicious attack against the rights of LGBTQI plus people. And it's important to hear from powerful voices in support of those rights. The second, and just as important and more universal, is that Mia has been very successful at accomplishing something that is very difficult, which is she fully embraced the core aspect of her identity, but she's not defined solely by that. And there's a very practical example that you will hear when we come to the part of the conversation where we discuss the connection between her songwriting and the writing of classic country artists like Loretta Lynn. Enjoy this episode. I hope you will take as many lessons from listening to Mia as I have taken from talking to her. Let's just start, introduce yourself to my listeners, a little bit of what you're doing now and sort of how you got here and take as little or as much time as you want. Well, for those who don't know me, my name is Mia Byrne. You spell it M-Y-A-B-Y-R-N-E. My name is an anagram for Amy, which is uh, my favorite aunt's name. I am a performer, specifically a singer-songwriter and guitar player uh, most of the time. And I'm also a studio musician. I'm an activist, I'm a writer, and currently I'm signed to Kill Rockstars Nashville as their first Americana artist. And more recently, I've been featured in Rolling Stone and NPR. And until very recently, I was an unsigned artist, uh, managing completely managing my own career. I have a manager now. I'm still doing, of course, you have to keep doing your due diligence. I've been an independent musician 
for 20 years, most of that time based in New York. More recently, I was in San Francisco for about eight years and um, back and forth to Nashville quite often. I am a trans woman. I'm queer. And I've, I've been told I'm at the forefront of a movement <laughs> and carrying a banner. One of the first trans women to gain recognition one of the first out trans women, I should say, because there have been trans women in country music for many, many years, but not all of them have been out. I am possibly one of the first to gain a large amount of recognition, both for the work I do as an artist and for how I stand within community. And I don't pull any punches. I tell it like it is. And I'm very proud of my life. I'm, I'm out as trans, I'm out as queer, I'm out as polyamorous, ethical non-monogamy, and I am Jewish, and I grew up in New Jersey. My father's a rabbi, my mother's an architect. I have been a lifelong feminist and activist. Some of my earliest memories are going to marches to protest the treatment of Soviet Jewry and during the totalitarian times, and I've just had a very interesting Zelig-like life where I've just been in the right place at the right time and met amazing people who mentored me and showed me how to conduct myself in the world. I was an editor for many, many years uh, working for Amicom Books, actually editing a lot of business titles. So I find it very interesting to be on here. I've, and in terms of you know how I conduct myself, I think just being in that environment has helped me with my leadership skills, certainly. You don't spend <laughs> 10 to 15 years editing a bunch of books on, on business and leadership without picking up a few things along the way. That's great. And you're being very modest. I want to share something with my listeners, which will both give them an idea of how far we still have to go and of some of your accomplishments. There had never been a kiss by a trans woman shown on country music television in a music video until the beautiful video for your song, It Don't Fade. So congratulations on that. And as I said, we still have a long way to go. You mentioned that you're very proud to be out as a queer and trans woman in the music business. I'm interested in learning, were you always out? And in, if not, what was the process for you to come out and embrace that identity? No, I wasn't out as a trans woman when I started playing music. It took me a long time to figure out who I was. And certainly, I came up in a time when any sort of queerness was sort of pushed down uh, in the mainstream, and I was definitely riding the mainstream. And, and it just wasn't something that I you know, would consciously think of. I also used to drink. <laughs> I've been sober for many years now. My One of the reasons that I've been able to keep my career. And you see this with a lot of trans and queer people. One of the biggest problems right now in our community is that people who are already out are having, when they're starting their careers, we've all sort of developed this sort of countercultural infrastructure, which is really wonderful. But at the same time, I often acknowledge the privilege I had of having had a career before I transitioned and being embraced by my community after I did. So yeah, I spent the first 15 years. I became a professional musician in 2003. So yeah, God, this it's my 20th year, like I said. And then I came out in 20, 2012, 2013. I really started transitioning then. And I'd already had a pretty substantive career in, in music, although there was 
always stuff that I couldn't quite push through. And, and then I spent a few years just sort of being pushed down to the bottom of the pile. You know, one of the things that we talk about in the podcast is what happens when you embrace your full authenticity and your values. And I'm interested in learning, how did your artistic expression change and evolve once you embraced your full self? It was interesting because for a long time, I wrote about being introspective. I'd been looking for aspects of myself that I wasn't sure of. And when I was able to affirm who I was and just sort of take that leap to become more myself, to really embrace who I, who I am, it fed everything. I just became more comfortable with myself on stage, became more comfortable with myself in the studio. Everything shifted. There was a sense of freedom and a sense that I could just engage with who I was and the work that I did in a much more authentic way. Not that I wasn't being authentic before. I was being authentic to a self that was there to protect who I am now. And once I got past this barrier and just broke down these walls, it enabled me to just fly. And I've been feeling so... And it's not to say that it's, it's certainly hard to be an out artist and to be taken seriously as a woman in any, in any business is, is a difficult thing. And then I have an extra hurdle. As I often call it, it's, it's not even a glass ceiling. It's a plexiglass ceiling. It's really hard to break. <laughs> and, and I see so many people that I know just flying in different clouds than I am, but we're all in the same currents, you know? And I have to remind myself that often that the metrics changed when I decided to affirm myself. Like being trans isn't a choice, but you know, for many people, they push themselves back down. And I think it just, it, it makes people struggle. It makes people lose their lives. I know so many people who, you know, the old chestnut of, I said chestnut before, but I'll say it again. The path to liberation is paved with self-realization and <sighs> There's just such a freedom that comes with being who you are. And I know that sounds simple, but I believe that if we as a people can just embrace our higher selves, not only are we going to be able to do right by ourselves, but we give more to the world and it, and it affects every kind of work we do. When I, when I came out, one of the things that happened with my side job as an editor is that I wound up becoming really respected for, I would get all of these really sensitive books and, and be able to talk about things. I would help shape books that would, in a different way than I would before, which is also one of the ways I came out. I, I remember just saying to an editor years and years ago, you know, this, this sentence could really hurt trans people. And then eventually I realized, I was like, oh no, it hurts me. <laughs> and it's interesting to view how much uh, trans misogyny, homophobia, femphobia, all of these things, anti-blackness just are really just embedded in so much of our culture on every level. One of the other things about being trans is that it takes the veil off of, of society and it enables you to really see what's going on for, for many people, certainly folks who maybe haven't experienced as much pushback in their lives. The, the truth is when you're trans, you're trans. 
you know, it's all, you're always trans. And so I think when I affirmed myself, I was able to also see the ways that all of this stuff had affected me for so many years and really put a name to it. But in terms of engaging with my work, I've never been a more active artist. I don't like to use the word productivity when it comes down to art or work, because I think that a work-life balance is very important. It's something that I struggle with because I tend to go into things full force. And I actually am planning a studio session right now. And one of the things I'm very inspired by is the Beatles, who would do very specifically do nine-hour sessions. And they do three hours at a time with breaks in between very specific, which was based on some union rules at, at EMI back in the 60s. But that way of working really works for me. Start at 10 in the morning, you know, take a break, three hours later, have a bagel. And all of these things that I think a lot of people don't do, I think it's really important to remember that we're human. And when you can remember that you are a person, you are a, you are a living human being, the way that I've been able to, one of the things about I think affirming myself as a trans person, as a queer person, is that I've learned how to care for myself in a way that I don't think I was able to for many years. Aside from the fact that I'm sober now, I think that embracing who I am literally meant that. Like I have to embrace myself like I'm my like I'm my own child and understand and and know when I'm tired. No one I need to give my brain a break. No one I need to give my body a break. Because the truth is, we're all growing and learning every day. We have to respect that. We've moved in the same musical circles for a while. And so I've, I've kind of had an opportunity to see you over the past few years. I've, you know, we've been friends at Facebook and I've seen you talk. It seems like you have more and more embrace from your persona to then like sort of the, the willingness to not only care for yourself, but really to speak out and not advocate and take a leadership role, if you will, in your community. How has that process matured? I know you mentioned activism was part of your family, but I'm interested in, you know, how has that matured? And then what has been sort of like the conscious part of the process of saying, okay, I'm interested in doing this and that's how I'm going to tackle it. A lot of my early activism post-transition was reactionary, certainly as you know, the trans community and women in general are under attack every day. And so a lot of it was like, we have to, we have to just get in the streets. We have to, we have to fight. We have to be seen. I'm a firm believer in the power of being out. Like Harvey Milk said, you must come out. You must come out at work, even if it's hard. You know, you must come out to your friends if they are your friends, because there's power there. And I think for a lot of people, they're unaware of their power. They're unaware of their individual power because they're stuck in institutions or the institutional mindset. And for me, having been in direct action activism for a very long time, whether it was writing articles for The Advocate or talking, as I do still frequently, to crowds of people and being like, we need to do this, we need to do that. It makes an impact. And I've seen it shift and change to the point where I no longer have to be the town crier. And I am. You watch me do this. I talk often about how my career is, is diminished, how I'm discriminated against, how my peers are discriminated against within the greater music industry. We are. And it's a terrible thing. At the same time, I think the thing that I 
most am interested in and have really shifted to, especially after I was very active in the in the movement in the mid 2010s to fight back against that Charlottesville stuff and all of these people who are basically neo-Nazis. I've been I was very active in just taking to the streets and eventually I had a motorcycle accident. I became disabled and I realized that I was a liability on the front lines of marches and, and actions. And so I took a step more towards being holistically I think part of my own persona is being a mom, being an aunt, and having this nourishing home that I live in where I can invite people to to feel safe, to feel like themselves. And so within my songwriting, especially within my songwriting workshops and the spaces I make for people to thrive as artists, I'm very, very deliberate about helping other trans people actualize their own skills. And I think a huge part of my activism right now is just simply showing up, especially in the realm of country Americana folk blues music, where I pretty much reside. A lot of younger trans musicians have come up to me very recently and said, I didn't know that there was a place for me here. Um, When we did the Love Rising concert at the Bridgestone Arena and I kissed my partner, who's also trans, in front of 18,000 people, I am still getting letters and just things like that. People just saying to me, I can't be out where I am, but you've shown me that there's a way, that there's a path. And so me just walking down the street, holding my partner's hand, or me talking openly about being uh, non-monogamous and having multiple partners that I love, all of that is revolutionary. Me just walking down the street is revolutionary because for so many years, we were forced to hide or we were forced to blend in. And, you know, I could do that. I could go and just walk through the world. And I know a lot of people who are in the closet still and who are trans, but who are in the closet because they don't feel like it's safe for them to come out in the corporate world or in any world uh, specifically. And I see them struggle with that because they want to be out because they want to be part of this great revolution. And I say to them, look, you are part of this revolution. And, you know, but yeah, coming out has a lot of power. And when queer people realize that they're the ones who've already, we've already won. That's why we're being pushed back against. When we push back against the status quo, it scares people because the thing that scares those in power, those who want to use individuals for their nefarious purposes, so to speak. I mean, we're just going back to, you know, we're just going to go back to the Harlan County Wars and all of these things. There's a reason unions exist. We're all part of the working class. Everybody is. Whether you're working in a midtown office or whether you're working at Starbucks or you're, you know, or you're an independent contractor or whatever the hell you are. And I see we're all part of the working class. And when we step on each other, which I see a lot, I see people getting a a moment of privilege and then just walking away from their, walking away from the class struggle and saying it doesn't apply to me. That's just not true. It's that there's the David Crosby song, What Are Their Names? Which is like, I wonder who they are, the men who really run this land, and I wonder why they do it with such a thoughtless hand. What are their names, and on what streets do they live? I want to fly over 
this afternoon, give them a piece of my mind about peace from mankind. Peace is not an awful lot to ask. And the truth is, is that we have a lot of power. And it scares the people in Bohemian Grove. And we all have the ability to be leaders. And I'll go to the Grateful Dead. Those of you who lead must follow. Because ultimately, leadership is not standing in the front of a line and just being like, bark, 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 bark. Leadership is making a bowl of soup for somebody who's hungry. I invite people to my house every week, and I feed them for our songwriters' meaning. And so for some of these people, they haven't had a meal that day, or they've forgotten to feed themselves. And nourishment is such a huge part of leadership. And meeting people where they are is such a huge part of leadership. And I've always been a nurturing person who's done that. But being able to bring in people who are like me, or seeing younger folks especially, there's so many people who've just gotten out of college that I know, like I'm 45 years old and I see like this, you know, all of these people who are in their 20s who are struggling the same way I was. And I want them to have a better world. When we went in to make my recent album, Rhinestone Tomboy, on the last day of tracking and overdubs, we had just finished up and my producer drove me home. And right as we got to the last stoplight, he just broke down in tears. I'm like, what's going on, man? And he's like, what we're doing is so cool. But like more than anything, it's like, I don't want anyone to have to go through what you went through. And oftentimes in talking about trans lives, people don't talk about our joy. Like I have so much joy in my life right now. And of course I struggle. It's, you know, I'm up against every day. I plug into Twitter and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> another law, another person struggling or another friend who's suffering or another person who's missing or stuff like that. But Ultimately, you know, it's like, you know, the fact that my partner and I can sit on a couch and like eat Indian food and watch The Simpsons and kiss each other and, and know that we can like walk down the street to the bodega and like buy a bar of chocolate, that's revolutionary. And it's just these simple joys. And like people talk about mindfulness, mindfulness, this, mindfulness, that. I'm like, what is mindfulness anyway? Mindfulness is the fact that I'm sitting here on my nice couch and my feet are on my nice rug, and I can feel the rug under my feet, and it feels good. People want to talk about like how hard it is to be trans. They want to talk about how hard it is to be queer, how hard it is to be a woman, or any marginalized identity, and the struggles you have to go through. And they want to focus on our pain. And it's very rare that people want to focus on our joy. And I can't deal with that. <laughs> it's, it's enough to talk about when things are wrong. People always say, you know, I'm stewing in, in the thing that just happened, I'm stewing in the bad. I'm like, why don't you stew in the good for a while? And I'm not such a Pollyanna, like, you know, let's all be glad now. But I'm, when I'm feeling down the most, I ask myself two things. Do I feel comfortable? And what are the ways I can feel more comfortable? Actually, three things. Did you eat or drink water? <laughs> and the third thing is, what can I find right now that can give me even a tiny bit of joy? that I can cling on to, you know, whether it's a rhyme or listening to a child play, remembering how I was as a child and like just sort of skipping down the sidewalk, whatever it is, you know, I want to manifest joy and make sure there's something around that can make me laugh and remember that I'm not alone. 
that's great and quite inspiring. I'm trying to have a moment to just fully dig it in, you know, honesty. I'm very cool. I do good shit. <laughs> Sorry, I won't curse anymore. I'm okay with cursing. You do great shit. And I, you know, there's the part that you just mentioned that talking about joy, but you're also somebody who took some practical steps in your activism. So one of the things you mentioned, the Bridgestone Arena concert, and that came along with a song that you released and recorded. And so you're operating in a genre that is not exactly a genre that has been leading or where it is natural for queer and trans artists to have an audience. So how was the process of rattling up people to get the song together and then to get the concert together? Well, um, my writing partner, Paisley Fields, who's a non-binary artist, and I, we, we have a writing practice when we're together. And it's usually like, what's going on in the world? How are we both feeling? And right then was when the Tennessee legislature had just passed all these bills, HB1 and HB3. And it was going to the governor's desk and the governor was talking about how terrible drag artists are, how terrible trans people are, all of this stuff. And we just, one of the things about Paisley and I is that I think the two of us tend to write kind of pretty songs apart from each other. And then when we're together, because we've had very similar backgrounds, both of us were, you know, queer kids who really didn't fit in and like, and we're just hanging out with, with all the women in the family and, you know, making pie instead of watching football and feeling like outcasts, not realizing necessarily that we were queer until much older. And so, like, we really related on that level. And so, when we get together, we tend to just bring out the parts of ourselves that need to come out, like, and the angry parts of this, ourselves. And, you know, there's this attitude in general culture that it's not okay to be angry. And one of my former therapists was like, you know, I see you not allowing yourself to be angry. You're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to be angry, Mimi. You're allowed to like get these thoughts out. You know, it's what you do with them. And so for Paisley and I, we were just furious because of what it meant. You know, I'm going to Nashville in a few weeks. I'm frightened. And all of this fascist thought and theory and the fascist praxis, frankly, that they're that they're engaging in, it affects everyone. So with that song, we both just sat down and were like, man, I just want to write an angry song about like, you know, damn it, I just want to burn the state house down. <laughs> and then it came to this concept of, oh, wait a minute, they're actually burning it down from the inside out. And we just wrote this song about how we felt and, you know, just pointing out the hypocrisy of Governor Lee demonizing drag, demonizing all of these people with these different opinions. I'm like, that's not democracy. And it just kind of flowed really easily. And we recorded it with my friend Chris Kelly, who's a wonderful, dear old friend of mine, the first person I ever came out to actually, in a studio in here in Williamsburg, uh, Brooklyn. And it came together very quickly in like a three-hour session with me and my uh, bass player friend Sandy, who helped finish the lyrics, and my partner Swan. We just rolled it all out very quickly and then we sent the track to Paisley, who was on the road with our friend Kim Register, and they happened to have an overnight at Kim's house, and so they recorded the other vocals. We mixed it, we sent it to the record company, and I actually said to the record company, I'm like, this is coming out no matter what, I'd like for you to get behind it. And they're like, oh, we love this. So 
they wound up getting a wonderful uh, queer mastering engineer that that's a friend, Piper Payne, down in Nashville to master it, which was lovely. And at that time, I had been giving interviews nearly every nearly every day for like a couple of weeks on my opinions on what was going on with the drag laws and the trans bans and all of this stuff. So it's just this very intense and charged time. And we finished the track. We got it out. We planned. I almost sang that song on stage at the Bridgestone Arena. And then at the last minute, my partner Swan actually was the one who's like, look, we all talked about it. And the, the record company's like, look, I'm going to be down with whatever you want to do. And Allison Russell's like, whatever you want to do is fine. But we we had a long conversation and we decided the thing we wanted to show that was even more revolutionary than me getting up on stage and being reactionary, frankly, and, and pulling that wool. It would have been a great moment, sure. But we decided the most important thing at Bridgestone was to show how beautiful trans love is and how safe we are and who's really being under attack here and what it means to demonize trans people and brought up i mean people sent me videos from the audience the audience crying and me and my partner singing into each other's eyes like the entire stadium disappeared and then the next morning we dropped that track and it just exploded people it really resonated with a lot of people and it obviously got its way to Bill Lee's desk because at some point he said, these people, they just want to like ruin our children and they want to burn the state house down. It's like, haha, you've heard it. You heard our song. That's good. And it's been getting airplay everywhere. And Paisley just sent me a video of them on stage in Margate, England, singing that song and 300 people singing along. People are angry. And people are finding distrust in their institutions because when you have like you know people like Rep. Justin Jones, the Tennessee Three, all of those folks being denied the chance to speak, or Zoe Zephyr being denied the chance to speak, you know, for being marginalized people, for being trans people, for being black people who are willing to stand up for the rights of the people, it all becomes very transparent that what we're dealing with is not just a difference of opinion and why can't we all just agree to disagree there are literal fascists in government right now who are trying to tell us what to do with our bodies how we should conduct ourselves in our businesses when my mother was in high school she wasn't allowed to wear jeans and that's what we're doing now we're becoming a regressive country one of the reasons i moved to new york city after having been away for a long time was that i felt it creeping up in california too you know, I said in an interview recently that one of the hard parts about being in California is that people don't realize that when you leave the cities, you know, there's Trump flags everywhere. There's there's people who are angry and they have a right to be angry. People should be angry because they've been failed by the government. And But what they need to realize is that when people are scapegoated, when women are scapegoated, when queer people are scapegoated, they're next. These people aren't there for the working people. These people aren't there for the farmers. That's the truth of the matter. They're not there for the folks who just want to live a life and exist. But it's the same thing. It's just creating class divisions so that more people can be controlled. This is like Marxism 101. This is like, this is what happens. And so I'm very proud of that song. I'm very proud that that song... I was very afraid to, to put it out, but I'm so, so proud that that song really has resonated with so many people. And 
it's a rallying call and I was worried about it and I'm glad that I just let it let it get out there in the world. Well, I'm very glad that the song got and I will say something else. I love Paisley and I love the word that you two do together. And the one thing that it's really cool because of the genre that you guys operate in is that in your best writing with Paisley, what I hear is a direct line to a certain songwriting that Loretta Lynn used to do in the 70s. It's that combination of being very direct and being funny. Like the album that came a couple of years ago out that you did with the Paisley's album, there's a couple of his songs that could be directly written by Loretta Lynn, both on sort of the funny relationship songs, but then also, you know, a song like Burns the State I Was Down could almost be connected to The Pill. Absolutely. Both of us are so inspired by Loretta. And it's funny, we were in conversation with our friend Hunter Kelly. We have a, just a text thread going of funny memes and things. We had a text thread going the other day about a, just a new song that I'd written that was just sort of a funny, you know, a funny queer song in that style. And we just started talking about Loretta and I just sort of quipped. I'm like, honestly, we're the only two people alive who are actually genuinely writing Loretta Lynn songs. We're both very inspired by her. And the other thing about Loretta's songwriting, which has been one of my inspirations forever, is that Loretta would do two things. She would write, and I have a book on her songwriting right here. The songwriting she did was, was honest and, you know, she had like four or five babies. She didn't plan on it. And in this book that she wrote about her time with Patsy Cline, she's like, I don't want to have other babies right now. I'm like, she got pregnant. and. She's like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And Matthew's like, well, you gotta, because it's like, you know, it's of the time. She probably could have gone, you know, she's, and she's like, that's why I wrote the pill because, you know, I saw these younger people and they've got the opportunity. I didn't to just be able to have some autonomy over their reproductive lives, which everybody's entitled to. And also she would write. So that was like from her own personal experience. And she was banned for that. And I think she wrote Rated X and all these other songs sort of in response to that. But she would never really call herself a feminist per se, but she was. But everything that she did, especially like Van Leer Rose, her, her great album with Jack White, she really went on the record with her songwriting process. And she, she said, I go into a room and I think of an idea and I put myself into that person. I put myself into that story and I kind of become another person. And I go down those roads. And because some of those songs are really, really dark. You know, it's like, what if I were a woman in prison for murder? <laughs> like, and so the fact that she would do that, and there's her daughter somewhere was like, I don't go near mama when she's writing because she becomes somebody else. And I just, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be near that. <laughs> but that's something that I do with all of my songwriting partners is I talk about what does the song want? What's the intention here? Who's talking? Who's the character in the song? How can we serve that character in that song? And then in terms of stylistically, I'm super influenced by, of course, by Outlaw Country and, and Loretta Lynn and classic country music. And frankly, not a lot of people are writing it. And one of the best pieces of feedback I've gotten recently about my record, a lot of people are intrigued by the song, Please Call Me Darlin', which is you know, one of these classic songs with recitation, whatever. And people are like, wow, I haven't heard a song like that in literal decades. And I'm like, well, you know, this is just the way I write. 
and it's not a pastiche and it's not it's very real it's who i am is you know i want to write songs that speak to people and the truth of the matter is is these a lot of songwriters in nashville a lot of artists in nashville these they're literal truck ads they're like i've just bought a new chevrolet look at my freaking lift kit solo cups and you know a beer pong game this actually this sounds pretty good <laughs> you know and let's all hang out on the tailgate i'm like well you know what i like doing i like hanging out on the tailgate too i like hanging out and, and watching the fireflies come up and that isn't limited to straight people and that's the thing that paisley and i try to make clear is that queer lives trans lives our stories are not only just as valid as these other stories but they hold weight. And what people react to more than anything in country music, in folk music, in rock music too, is real stories. Or even in hip-hop music, I get so much great feedback from my friends who are hip-hop artists, who are R&B artists, who are like, wow, you know how to tell a story. You just took me down. I wrote a song about Robert Johnson a few days ago, sent it to my, my friend and collaborator, La Fembert, Leanne Mitchell, who's a wonderful producer and engineer. Please hire her. If you're a musician, because like me, she's a trans woman. She doesn't get as much work as she should. I sent her this, you know, relatively like folky song. And, you know, sometimes we write folk songs together, but her bread and butter is really like remixes and music for video games and soundtracks and her own sort of meld of of just like this really good church-influenced hip-hop R&B kind of thing. And, and she gets pigeonholed a lot because she's Black because she sometimes writes in a very specific style, but she knows how to tell a story. And she listened to this song that just sounds like, like some ancient silver dagger kind of Joan Baez song. And she's like, wow, I'm just like in awe of the way you can tell a story. And I like cried because she's one of my besties and I respect her so much. But what I'm saying here is that at its essence, a song is a melody and words. It's not chords. It's not arrangements. It's what message you're carrying. And I believe truly that when you are your authentic self, and that's not to say that trans people or anyone who's not being, quote, authentic, isn't their true self. They're just trying to find a path. It's just when you can operate on a level that feels correct to you and where you're not trying to adhere to somebody else's ethos, when you can take those challenges, just like Loretta Lynn did, and and say, I'm going to write a song about even Dolly Parton with like Dumb Blonde and all of these songs, or Jolene and all of these songs that were just really edgy at the time and still are in many ways. Or because it was okay for like George Jones and all these other people to write songs about cheating or swingers. But the second a woman does that kind of stuff and says, hey, this isn't okay, they get pushed back. You see that a lot. And so I'm very influenced by these strong women who carry this message and I want to keep doing that. And our stories hold power when they're real. And when you can tell your story without any censorship of yourself, that's where the real power comes from. That's when the things start to flow. Well, this is a very powerful place to close what I call the professional section of the conversation. We will go into the three personal questions. But before we do that, your new album, Rhinestone Tomboy, is available on, on all streaming platforms and on Bandcamp. But for people who want to find you online, where can they find you? Honestly, <laughs> I mean, I, I will always recommend uh, if you're trying to find my music, 
just type my name into title, M-Y-A-B-Y-R-N-E. My favorite flex is like, so a lot of people are like, oh, instantly, instantly, you know, here's my website. I'm like, just type my name into Google. I'll come up. (laughs) Which is definitely a flex. And I love saying that. My music is on all the streaming services. I have a website that I'm terrible at updating. That's just myname.com. And really the best place to find me if you want to contact me or just be involved in my life is Instagram, which is at Mia Byrne, M-Y-A-B-Y-R-N-E. And if you, know, if you want to get in touch, just drop me a message there and I'll, I'll try to try to get back to you or drop me a message through my website. Always down to talk. Fabulous. So quickly moving to the more personal part. The first question is, do you have a passion or a hobby that's outside of music or your work? And how does that impact your life and work? I think my biggest passion outside of my life and my work and my obsession over guitars in general is cooking and gardening, walking. I also study cities and how cities work, public policy. And wherever I live, I want to be part of the environment in which I live in. So my mother being an architect, I've always been, you know, I always look for the details. And I try to hear the stories of the streets. But uh, you know, literally right before we got on this call, I put up some bread dough to ferment. Making bread is one of my passions, one of my great passions. I I'm very Italian in my <laughs> in my way of eating. I mostly like eat bread, cheese, and, and vegetables and olive oil. <laughs> That's fabulous. Next question. Normally don't ask it to artists, but given that you edited a number of business and leadership books, you may have an answer for this. There are many expressions that become popular in business and jargon, uh, and at some point they lose meaning? Or So what is one expression that drives you crazy? Oh, just pull up your bootstraps. Basically the whole lie back and think of England kind of thing. I'm like, no, if you're tired, stop and ask for help. It's just That's just a load of crap. Anything from your days as an editor of leadership and business books? I had the good fortune of editing a bunch of Peter Drucker's writings after he passed. After Peter Drucker died, he, you know, his protege shows up to his funeral and like it's a bunch of business guys in suits just being like, oh man, I miss my friend, whatever. And then a bunch of like folks from Japan just trickled in. And it turns out that very secretly, Peter Drucker had also been a, a huge expert in Japanese art, which none of his friends knew about. So something Peter Drucker talked about when he was alive is like, don't just focus on your one career. Always have something else happening. Not just, you know, it's not a fallback. It's that it feeds the other part of you. And that's not just a hobby. That's, you know, you can have more than one vocation, even if that other vocation doesn't necessarily pay you. Frank Lloyd Wright was also obsessed with Japanese art and architecture. Obviously, that had a different meaning for him. But That's the thing that I've kept in mind. And so that's why I edited for such a long time. And I still have a foot in publishing. I now just privately do, I'll read for people or, you know, I'm a first reader on on a bunch of books, just privately for friends who are novelists or, you know, just writers in general. I, I, I deal a lot with like historical nonfiction sort of biographical stuff and, and whatever. And that's a pleasure for me. But that was influenced by Jackie Kennedy who after, after the kids went off to college, she didn't know what to do with her life, you know, because you know, she's basically being a socialite in New York. She's like, I don't love this. I need something to do to occupy my brain. And she became a junior editor at Viking and then wound up becoming a senior editor very quietly. 
not many people knew about that until she, after she died, except for the people she worked with. But she edited Gore Vidal's books and Salman Rushdie's books and all of these amazing books that have influenced the, the latter half of the 20th century. She was brilliant. And so at a very young age, I was like, I can't just concentrate on music. There's got to be something else in my life that feeds me spiritually, emotionally, mentally, intellectually. So that's why I, I was a professional editor for 15 plus years, along with my music. It just, but then, you know, that changed when I, this year when, when I got signed to the label and I knew I needed to just work full time on music. Not that I wasn't working full-time, but I was essentially working two jobs. I was working 70 hours a week. It was too much. I'm 45. I, I can't do that anymore. But I think that it's really important to remember that you're not just one thing. And you're also not a cog in general, but you're not one thing. And I think every artist should read some stuff by Peter Drucker, <laughs> frankly, because he's been a huge influence on me. Well, that's a great answer, and I'm thankful that you actually went with something positive rather than another business jargon expression from your experience, because it was really, really insightful. So, we're now to the final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. You can choose if you go the body route, you can pick a recipe or a drink, or if you go the soul route, you can choose a book, a piece of art, a song, a piece of music, play theater movie, anything, something that inspires you? Well, I'll say that the most important thing is that making bread is not hard. And I think it's really a wholesome and wonderful way to literally feed yourself and your friends. And for those of you who haven't perhaps made bread before, there's a wonderful cooking show on YouTube called Glenn and Friends, which is very wholesome and very sweet. It's this Canadian uh, man and his wife, Julie, and we're the friends. <laughs> they come on there like, hello, friends. But he has a wonderful recipe for no-need bread, which is very simple. And it's a wonderful episode. It, it changed the way I make bread, frankly. And I've been making bread for years. And I would recommend watching that because you can, you can make bread for dinner tonight and without much fanfare. And then in terms of a song, I've been... Very recently, my partner has been playing The Wind by Cat Stevens quite a bit. And that song in particular has just been really moving me. And if you haven't dipped back into Cat Stevens lately, I would recommend you do. Because that is food for the soul. It does make me cry, but it also makes me think and feel. And I think anytime a person can feel something, whether it's the bread you've made or getting your hands in the dirt or listening to a song that makes you feel something so deep inside, even if the song itself doesn't make any sense to your life, let those emotions flow. All right, Mia, that's great. Thank you so much for coming today. And thank you for your transparency, your honesty, your passion, and for your great work. Thank you so much, Dina. What a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Also, make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. If you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating or a review. Five stars all the way. Stick around because thanks to Mia, after the credits, I'm going to play Burn This State House Down, the song she mentioned in the podcast. For more information and all the links, go to the episode page on the website, 
The site is al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And please make sure that you're following the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. The handle in both places is at al4edp with the letter D. On Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, Burn This State House Down by Mia Byrne and Paisley Fields. Second Civil War You're telling folks to think about the children Now where have I heard that line before? I think it's time you listen to the people Cause we're the ones who make this country proud And if you keep on throwing matches on this Trick good folks with your hypocrisy. And I think you know exactly what you're doing. Your laws are putting bodies in the ground. But if you keep on throwing matches on this gasoline, it's gonna burn this state house down. Distracting folks with all of these nonsense rules. Do you remember doing drag in 1977? Yeah, you'll make trans kids, but you won't be.